The Eagle and Child, Episode 3. Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 1. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today in this podcast, we're going to be beginning chapter one of Mere Christianity. And as I look at this well-known work of Christian apologetics, I'm going to be joined by my fellow inkling wannabe and C.S. Lewis enthusiast, Matt. Thank you, David. And I wanted to start by saying thank you to the listeners. So far from the first three episodes, we've had wonderful feedback. And so we appreciate you guys listening. And as always, I'm incredibly grateful and excited to be here and excited to dive into the first chapter. And I'm also very grateful, but I would be even more grateful if people would rate us on iTunes and write us some reviews. As we said in the earlier episodes, there aren't really C.S. Lewis podcasts out there. So we want to raise this podcast up so more people get to read C.S. Lewis and come to experience the goldmine of this book. So that would be great. If you take issue with anything that we say here, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is Pints with Jack. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, we're not C.S. Lewis experts, we're just enthusiasts. And before we actually get started today, I have to issue a correction. I can't believe that it's episode three and I'm already having to issue a correction. I'm sure this is how I'm going to grow in humility. Anyway, last weekend I went to the Catholic Answers Conference and uh, a papal document called Ut Unum Sint was mentioned quite a lot. And I found that this, in fact, was the original source of the quotation that I gave in the previous episode. I said that Raniero Cantalamessa says that what unites us as Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, what unites us is infinitely greater than what divides. Well, during one of the talks, Ut Unum Sint, on commitment to ecumenism, was read, and I found a quotation that sounded rather familiar. So this is in paragraph 20. It is absolutely clear that ecumenism, the movement promoting Christian unity, is not just some sort of appendix that is added to the church's traditional activity. Rather, ecumenism is an organic part of her life and work, and consequently must pervade all that she is and does. It must be like that fruit borne by a healthy and flourishing tree which grows to its full stature. This is what Pope John XXIII believed about the unity of the church and how he saw full Christian unity. With regards to other Christians, To the great Christian family, he observed, what unites us is much greater than what divides us. So I apologize for being misleading. It was apparently Pope John XXIII who originally said that. Maybe it's for a reason, though, because this is a good chance for all the listeners, especially if you're a Catholic listener, to realize that there's a deep richness in the documents that the popes write. And I've just started digging into them, and they're incredible. And so just what you wrote or read here, I should say, was beautiful. Just imagine what's out there. And also, I think it sets a good tone when we're talking about mere Christianity. In the episodes on the preface that we were discussing, we got into a lot of denominational issues. So it's kind of nice just to reset and reaffirm what unites Christians as we now go through this book. And so with that out of the way, let's return to mere Christianity. And I think it'd be helpful just to talk about the structure of the book before we get too stuck into it. It's made up of actually four books. The first one is Right and Wrong as the Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, which is basically C.S. Lewis's argument, the moral argument for God. 
The next book is What Christians Believe. And it's all about the different conceptions of God that people have. And specifically, he focuses in on Jesus. In book three, which is Matt's favorite, uh, it's on Christian behavior. And here he talks about virtue, specifically the cardinal virtues, and morality, and particularly focusing on marriage and sexual morality. And he also talks about forgiveness and the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And finally, in book four, Jack never chose short titles for these things. It's called Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. And it's kind of what it says on the tin. It's about the Trinity, about the concepts of time and eternity. And he particularly focuses on what it means to be or to become a son of God. And he asks some great questions like, is Christianity hard or easy? And as well as whether Christianity just makes nice people or whether it makes new people, new men. David and I are C.S. Lewis enthusiasts. We've read this book before, but I actually haven't read it all since probably six years ago. And so as we go through this, I'm reading it again. And I haven't read book four yet in the last, well, I guess, seven years. And so as I'm looking at that, those are awesome questions. Like, mm -hmm. think about that for a second. Is Christianity hard or easy? I want to know the answer to that. Is Christianity make nice people or new men? I mean, those are fascinating questions. Now, before we go any further, start as we mean to continue. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that was a good clink. Mm -hmm. So we're just finishing off the six pack of Blue Moon that we started in earlier episodes. And next week, we'll be starting something new. Yes, one of my friends said, I, I like to know what beer you're drinking as you're discussing C.S. Lewis. Yeah, it's the most important part of the podcast. It really helps either to, to make this podcast or I'm sure to listen to it as well. <laughs> so chapter one, it's entitled The Law of Human Nature. And in this chapter, Jack is going to start laying the foundation for what we might call the moral argument for God. And he's going to develop it very methodically, piece by piece over the course of this book. And in this chapter, he makes two main points. He asserts that there is this law of human nature and also that we don't keep this law. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, so let's actually now dig into some of the text. And, and we want to make a quick plug as you listen to this. We're going to be going, as usual, a chapter, an episode. And so, as David just put out, he builds this slowly. And so as you're listening to this, for example, the first chapter provides the foundation. The second chapter really goes into a lot of objections, and so does the third chapter. And so as you're listening, kind of hold some of those questions and those thoughts until we get through these first few chapters, because it all comes together by chapter four. So Jack opens by describing the sort of things that people say when they're quarreling. How'd you like it if anybody did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. And Jack explains that every kind of person, rich or poor, young or old, they all say things like this. And then he goes on to explain what we can learn hearing the kinds of things that people say when they argue. He says, the man who makes these objections is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. When the other person argues about this, his response is extremely telling. Mm -hmm. So Lewis says, nearly always, he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard. 
or that if it does, there's some special excuse. He pretends that there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. I think to my own life, and I do that all the time. <laughs> I mean, I make excuses for everything I do, but then I hold everybody else to some standard. Absolutely. So, so do we all. Uh, but I remember the very first time I was reading Mere Christianity, and you know, we're only a couple of paragraphs in, and he just made me stop in my tracks and just think about what this says, how we argue, and what it is assuming. And we so often miss this. Oh, it's just people arguing about something. Well, yes, but the very fact that they are arguing about something means that one thinks that the other has violated some standard that they both should agree is true. And we're going to get into this, what David's talking about, we're going to get into this in a little bit. But what Lewis is essentially doing is he's looking within us to find information rather than you can try to create an argument for God, looking at the universe, seeing how it was created, what's the meaning of it, why was it created? Or you can look within us and be like, okay, maybe there's something in us that's very telling. And that's what he's using right now. And the wonderful thing about this particular argument for God, we're nowhere near it yet. He's going to take several chapters to even get even vaguely close to the argument for God. But this argument of the moral law is far richer in some ways than some other arguments for God because there's more data. Because when we speak about morality and the moral law, we can look inside ourselves. And what's interesting is all of this, this arguing, reinforces this idea. I mean, think about it, this idea that there's some real standard. Because there's, there's no point in you and I arguing if there's no real standard. Mm -mm. And so Lewis says, quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong. And there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Mm -hmm. And there's something very important here that all the American listeners must understand. He's talking about real football here, not, <laughs> not this American football nonsense where everybody's wearing body armor. Real football or soccer, as you people keep insisting on calling it. You know, I can let that slide because I was a soccer player. <laughs> I would just say generally, one of the wonderful things about Lewis is he's really great at analogies and metaphors. This example, I think, really works. There's no point saying that somebody has committed a foul unless there is an agreed upon set of rules. So he then goes on and introduces the concept of the law of nature or the law of human nature or the moral law. It's got a bunch of different names that he uses interchangeably. And he compares this to the other kinds of laws in nature, such as gravity. Here's what he says. A body could not choose whether it obeyed the law of gravitation or not. But a man could choose whether to obey the law of human nature or to disobey it. So if I'm on my roof and I jump off, I have no choice as to whether or not I'm going to obey gravity. I'm very obedient. I will do exactly what it says. He says, if you leave a man unsupported in midair, he has no more choice about falling than a stone has. But the law which is particular to human nature is one that he can disobey if he chooses. And he's going to come back to this idea in chapter 3, the difference between the law of human nature and, say, the law of gravity. And it all focuses around the point that the human being has choice as to whether or not they obey it or not. Now, you might be thinking, we're talking about this law of nature, and, okay, there's people that aren't following this, so is this really, truly law of nature? 
because Lewis says this law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. They thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. So a natural objection to that would be, well, if I see a bunch of people not following this, maybe this argument's not true. Maybe it's not so obvious. Yeah, maybe it isn't so obvious. So he immediately responds to those who claim that this law of nature is not universal by pointing out the analogy that you might find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune, but that doesn't mean that there's not color. In the same way that there's a few people that might here or there not be following the law of nature, that doesn't mean there's not a law of nature. He also says, of course, if such a law did not exist, it would lead us to say some very silly things about World War II. And it's worth remembering the era in which he was writing this. Lewis himself served in World War I, and he had been living through World War II. So this, this was very real, very immediate. We're in no danger of breaking Godwin's law here. This was, this was life. Yeah. I mean, he says, think about this. If there were not, meaning not a law of nature, then all the things that we say about the war were nonsense. What was the sense of saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them. That's key. You can still fight them. But we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. That's powerful. Yeah. And again, particularly, imagine you are one of the people who are listening to these original radio broadcasts. The Nazis are making their way through Europe. Everyone in England is thinking, this is wrong. They shouldn't be doing this. And so it's very difficult with that as the background to say, oh, there's no such thing as right and wrong. As Lewis says, if there's no such thing as right and wrong, we might have to fight them to repel them, but we can't say that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. So the most obvious objection to this, I think, and I think this is what most people will say when you tell them that there is this immutable, eternal, moral law, is people will say, well, surely there are different moralities. And throughout human history and in different parts of the world, and at different times, there have been different moralities. Well, if it's that different, well, then how can there be this moral law? And in reply to this, Jack explains that the differences between them are pretty trivial. He says that if you look at the different civilizations and different ages, you'll find that they did indeed have some different moralities, but they never amounted to anything like what he calls a real or total difference. And he says, if anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teachings of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. And he goes on to explain that he collected all the evidence for this in a separate book of his called The Abolition of Man. Uh, have you read that one? I haven't. It was really good. Uh, it was one of the earlier books of his that I read. And a tip for anybody who's going to tackle that book, get to that appendix. What he's referring to here, where he outlines all of the similarities in morality. Because throughout the book, he keeps talking about this Tao. And it took me ages to understand what he was talking about until I went to the appendix, which I actually only read at the very end of the book. And so just as I was getting through the last pages, it was like, ah, now I understand what you were talking about. Because <laughs> I hadn't read Mere Christianity before, so I didn't quite understand where he was going with it. So it sounds like this would be a really great book for 
a listener to read if they're thinking, well, you know what, that seems like a bit of a cop-out statement that there are some differences. And it sounds like Lewis spent a lot of time addressing that Mm -hmm. and researching that. Yeah, I would say get to the end of book one of Mere Christianity. And if you're still not convinced, go and read The Abolition of Man. And the reason I also really love this point, that the differences are not that great and why I think it's important to believe that. So if you don't read Abolition of Man, is because I actually think this is one of the strongest arguments against the objection that we will talk about later. So I won't go into too much depth, but you might be already thinking, well, maybe it's an evolutionary social convention that created this morality. It's good for society to believe these things. Well, take a step back and think about, you know, Thousands of years ago when civilizations were over the world, there wasn't as much communication. You'd expect to see pretty decent differences between these different civilizations if social convention was the answer for the law of morality. The fact that there's not that great of differences to me suggests that there is truly something placed in our heart. That is where we're getting this, our conscience. And for people who are Chesterton fans, which actually I know a few people that are listeners that are, He uses this exact same argument for other religions and argument that there is a God. Some people like to say, well, look, there's all these different religions across the world. So doesn't that mean that there isn't a God and this is just something that we all thought up of? Yeah. And Chesterton responds, well, that makes me actually believe that there is because why am I seeing this everywhere? Surely there has to be some truth to it. There has to be something in here that explains this experience we see throughout the globe. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing with law morality. Surely there has to be something in us that has allowed these moralities to be extremely similar. And Lewis really drives this home and puts the final nail in the coffin where he says, think about what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud for double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well as imagine a country where two and two made five. (laughs) It is actually funny. It's hard to think about that. Well... I actually wanted to focus on that last line, imagining a country where two and two made five, because there are a few metaphors that Jack really enjoys and uses often. And this is one of them in particular, about mathematics. And I think mathematics in particular is a very good parallel to give, because it's about something that's real, it's about something that's objective, but that's also immaterial. So I think it's a really good comparison to use when we're talking about this moral law which is also real, objective, and immaterial. I like this last point that Lewis brings up. I think it's amusing. He says, all right, those individuals who, and maybe it's some of you listeners, who deny that there's a real right or wrong, you'll accidentally betray yourself eventually. So he uses this example. The person who denies it may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, He will be complaining, it's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson. So if I can just first say, I love using the phrase Jack Robinson. We'll be using that more in speech. I've enacted this when I've been talking to people and they've told me that right and wrong don't exist. I'm usually at a pub when these conversations happen. And so what I'll do is just as they're talking, I'll reach over and take their pint and start drinking it. And they'll say, what are you doing? I'm drinking this beer but it's mine. To which I respond, is that wrong? And then while they're looking all confused, I finished their beer. (laughs) I like that. There was a book, I actually haven't read it, but I've seen lots of extracts of it. Frank Turek, I think his book is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. He makes an observation that I think is very important here. 
He says that we see the presence of the moral law more clearly in our reactions than in our actions. That if you looked at the way that I live my life, it wouldn't be immediately obvious that I think that there is this moral law, this standard to which I must live. However, the inside data, what we were talking about before, when I see wrong being done, especially when it's being done to me, I recognize this reaction in myself that says, that is wrong, that is not right, that is not fair. So if, it, if someone says that they don't see the moral law, do something nasty to them. <laughs> see how they react. Uh, by the way, this podcast takes no legal or financial responsibility if you do something nasty to anyone else. <laughs> this, this is a really good point, though. At the end of the day, if this is something where so far you're still struggling with this, first point, as we've already mentioned, just stick with it. Chapter two and three, the next podcast will go to objections. But also just spend the next week or two as you wait for these podcasts to come out to just pay attention to yourself when people betray you. Cut you up in traffic. Uh-huh. Think about how you're, you feel about that and this right or wrong. And then also when you do something wrong that you know in your heart you did, and as we've already talked about, you make an excuse for it. Mm -hmm. That's where I see it the most. I make so many excuses for myself. It's not even funny. I mean, what about going to confession? I have to work so hard on not trying to justify each of the sins. I like to put it under the guise of I'm giving context to the priest so he can understand what happened and why I did what I did. But really, I'm just making excuses. Oh, yeah. So on that point, what I try and do is I try and just write everything down. If the priest asks for more context and information, I will give it to him. But other than that, I'm just going to say what I did wrong and just be done with it. Isn't that one of the powers of confession that it forces you to actually acknowledge and it doesn't allow you to make those excuses that we make constantly? So this really brings together the main point that Jack has made thus far, that there is this moral law. And as he's drawing this chapter to a conclusion, he hammers home another point. There is this moral law, and we don't keep this moral law. Before going into this in detail, he has a comment that is wonderfully tongue-in-cheek. Here's what he says. None of us are really keeping the law of nature. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They had much better read some other work for nothing that I am going to say concerns them. And now turning to the ordinary human beings who are left. <laughs> and I should probably say the same is true for this podcast. If you're listening to us and you never break the moral law, you should probably find some other podcast. Because Jack goes on to explain that for the rest of us sinners, <laughs> this year, this month, or maybe even today, we fail to practice the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. So true. Well, it's interesting too, and he's kind of already made this point earlier, but the fact that we don't keep this law, it doesn't change the law itself. Mm -mm. And I really like here, he uses a mathematical metaphor again, because he says, just because someone does their multiplication wrong or their addition wrong and says two plus two equals five, it doesn't actually change that two plus two equals four. No, we say something about the arithmetic that they've just done. Yeah. We have a word for it. Wrong. Yeah. He goes a step further and he says our excuses actually only reinforce that there is a moral law. Yeah. He says that when we've done shady things with money, when we've been mean to our wife and kids, we have reasons for all of it. You know, we were hard up. We were tired. That person is really, really annoying. And if you only knew, again, this just sounds like me in confession. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I was, I was mean to my coworker, but father, he is so irritating. <laughs> or that person was so 
just impatient and nasty in the store line when I was trying to check out. Of course, I have to shout out. After a long day of work, <laughs> Lewis strengthens this point by saying, "The moment anyone tells me I am not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses. As long as your arm, if we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently?" I think he's right. At the end of the day, you could just be like, why does that matter? I can just live how I want. You live how you want. There's no standard to it. And I'll often say that the point when I've done something and I later realize that I've done something wrong is usually when somebody has brought that situation to my attention and I'm immediately there with excuse, excuse, excuse. And my mind is scrambling for looking for justification. Mm -hmm. There generally isn't a better proof that what you did was not right. Wouldn't it be kind of cool just to put this thought in there? What if we tried to make those excuses for other people? I mean, think about that, actually. We're so kind to ourselves and forgiving that we create all these excuses. Is that what love your neighbor as yourself means? Yeah, I would agree. And Jack heads down this route in book three when he pulls apart what love your neighbor as yourself really means. And he, he says there that there was one man in, in life for whom I was always making excuses. Myself. Yeah. I mean, imagine when you see someone screwing up, someone sinning, someone being mean, someone being angry, and you actually say, you know what, though? What if they just lost their job today? Mm -hmm. What if they had a really big fight with a loved one? What if they had an abusive childhood that brought them to this circumstance? And something's just triggered them. And something's just triggered them. We don't know. And I think that's why all of it comes back to in the gospel message, don't judge. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know. We don't know the, the interior stuff that went on. We can look at the action and see that was not nice. That was wrong. Yes. But we don't know what was going on inside the person at the time. And I've, I've had some friends who have been counselors and they'll often say that when somebody's being angry or actually whenever anybody's expressing a particular emotion, go looking for the emotion that's behind that. So in particular, if someone's reacting very angrily, there's very often a hurt, a fear that is fueling, that is coming out as anger, that there's a wound there, that if you go looking for it, you'll understand that person far better. Think of a classic one that I think applies to me a little bit. I like to be right. And we all have a fear of not <laughs> no, being no, right. No, 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 Matt, you don't like to be right. <laughs> we, we all have a fear of being not worthy or being not lovable. I think you can trace that to most people, not feeling like you belong. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, we all have different ways of fixing that. For me, I think intelligence is a way that I can be accepted because people like smart people. And therefore, the second people start proving I'm wrong, I get defensive. And sometimes I'll snap or pride will come out. And so you might not realize the, the, the person on the other side, why I'm doing it. But the true reason is just an insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so circling back to that idea, the fact that we do really know the moral law, this reminds me about what St. Paul wrote about the Gentiles in Romans chapter 2. He says that even though they do not have the law, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or perhaps excuse them. That's powerful. Yeah. Right from scripture, it's explaining everything we're talking about. He explains what God has written on every human heart, even if they haven't been exposed to, say, the law of Moses or even the gospel of Jesus. And so Jack sums up this chapter. He says, these then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in this way. They know the law of nature, they break it. 
These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. That sums it up pretty well. Oh, and that was the bell for last call. So Matt and I better start wrapping things up. Please like, share, and subscribe. iTunes, Google Play, particularly rate us so more people can get to listen to this. And feel free to contact us through the website. In fact, I'll put a link to my notes for chapter one of the book in the show notes. And I'll also put a link to the C.S. Lewis doodle. If you haven't come across these, they are fantastic. It's basically somebody reading this chapter from mere Christianity and an artist is drawing pictures over the top. So you end up with this massive infographic. No way. It's fantastic. Before we record the next show, I'll show you one. Perfect. And always feel free to tweet us. Our handle is at Pints with Jack. If you disagree with anything we've said, tweet us. We'd love to hear. Especially as we get into these new things and we're starting to get into the law of morality. It'd be awesome just to get your guys' thoughts and feedback. Mm -hmm. So let's do the sign-off. As we've mentioned before, this is a line from the last of the Narnia books. Further up. And further in. Cheers.